I just want to be really clear. You should be absolutely freaked out mm-hmm. about the potential <laughs> of a Kessler syndrome and about losing access to space exploration because of satellites crashing into each other. You just don't have to worry about Starlink. We are back with another episode of the Cold Star Project, the podcast about the unexpected challenges of scaling, which we're going to get into in this episode as well, because my guest here has quite a bit of business experience. However, he's primarily here as a space guest, and uh, I'm very excited to have Fraser Kane here, who is the publisher of Universe Today and co-host of Astronomy Cast. And uh, you can check those out at universetoday.com and astronomycast.com. So Fraser, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jason. I have been following you as a science space expert for at least a year. Um, Great. (laughs) At least on Twitter. And uh, when you, I think you partnered up with Isaac Arthur on a video Mm -hmm. on his channel and that was a big deal just to watch. Um, Maybe, but maybe a year ago as well. Uh, we've done a bunch of partnerships yeah. so but yeah that makes sense yeah and uh, he for those of you who don't know isaac arthur runs what i think is the best science and futurism explainer channel on youtube i mean there's there's nothing quite like it <laughs> he's, he's an original but fraser here has tons of experience lots of technical know-how on that and what we thought we'd talk about today are a couple things uh one called starlink and that's an elon musk thing that we're going to dig into space infrastructure and startups because Fraser has experience with his own startups and he has a unique point of view from having been punched in the face about doing the typical, you know, create a startup uh, and then exit strategy uh, kind of thing. And so we'll hear about his opinion on that. So Fraser, tell us a little bit about Starlink. Assume that the audience are smart business people, but really don't know much about space. Oh, it, it's hard to miss what's happened with Starlink in the last couple of, of months, but the gist is that uh, one of the, one, another one of the side projects that Elon Musk has been doing with SpaceX is to launch a constellation of internet-providing satellites into low-Earth orbit. And these are going to be different from the previous ideas like Iridium, which was 66 satellites at a, at a fairly high altitude. I think they're about a thousand kilometers or higher. Uh, These are going to be very low altitude, very tight beamed satellites that will provide extremely high bandwidth to literally every spot on Earth. Uh, And the eventual plan is to launch 12,000 of these satellites so that there will be many overhead at all times, providing everybody on Earth who wants it at, I think, a gigabit speed to, to a pizza box sized receiver. Right. Um, right. And so the first 60 satellites were launched on a Falcon 9 rocket about a month ago. And, uh, and so far they're working. <laughs> you know, there's this, tr- this train that you can watch move across the sky, uh, it's usually a couple of times a night. And that's the, and that's the Starlinks as they're slowly drifting apart from one another and setting mm. up to to do their operations now this you won't be able to use this first group of satellites yet but the plan is in the next probably two years spacex is planning to be able to offer uh like service to limited service to some people with the first i think 600 700 satellites and then when they get upwards of about 3,000, they should be able to offer service to anybody and when they, they'll get to their full mega constellation at, at 12,000 satellites 
Wow. I mean, it's ambitious and it's big scale. I've been following CubeSats and SmallSats for years, but uh, nothing quite like this. It, it so, does feel a little bit like it came out of nowhere. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of people were watching it. And, and, mm-hmm. so, and yet here we are, the first 60 are there, another several hundred are going to be joining them in just this year. So within about two years, SpaceX through Starlink will have launched more satellites than are currently operational by in total <laughs> by everyone else. Right. Very, very cool. So what do you think about this? I mean, there's been some whining from competitors. Oh, Elon's trying to dominate the space satellite market, space internet with this technology. What do you well, think? The, okay. So, so I've heard estimates that the worldwide budget for telecommunications, just the spend, the amount of money spent in telecommunications is somewhere between, I've seen 1.5, 1.8, and up to $6 trillion is currently spent. Hmm. And, I, and I, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I can talk to anyone in your audience, and I don't need to know who their internet service provider is, but I know they hate them. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like, most of the time, you don't like your internet service yeah. provider. And you definitely don't have a big fondness for your mobile provider. So you've got these two providers that are giving you access to the internet that everyone has a, that, you know, almost everybody has a very low brand preference for. Hmm. And so here comes along a a dramatically different way to provide internet to the whole planet. Uh, It's, and, and it's come out of nowhere. And the only way that you can have a competitive, you can compete with SpaceX is to have already started a satellite, a, a rocket company, right? <laughs> so there is, there is quite the barrier to entry it's here. Absolutely a moat, you know, huh. Elon, Elon Musk has, has created a moat and then launched it to space. So good luck getting hmm. over that. Now you can, of course, pay for rocket launches, which people are going to. And this isn't just the first. I mean, there is probably... I've seen close to 10 satellite constellations in the works, including one coming from Amazon, which is going to be lofted by Blue Origin. So this is just the first. There will probably be 10 satellite constellations from different providers all at the same time. So competition is going to be a good thing. Okay. So we're not just tied to one provider, even though he does have a head start, which is a big deal. Uh, What about legislation and you know, the FCC and that. What kind of control do they have over this? Well, the, the, um, the, the Constellation did go through the FCC. So they were able to approve that, that they were able to, to launch these satellites. And the big concern, there's, I mean, it's two main concerns that the FCC is concerned about, right? One is the uh, telecommunications, the, what they're going to be broadcasting on. Is this going to get in the way? Is it going to cause airplanes to crash? Is it going to hmm. uh, be difficult for traditional uh, transmissions to, to happen? And they cleared that hurdle. So the, the, the broadcasting that they're going to be doing, they use these, these flat radio antennas that uh, will broadcast to a very small area and they're, they're fairly targeted. So I'm whatever regulatory process went through they looked at that and they judged it acceptable Um, the second thing that they're concerned about is space junk and that's of Mm -hmm. course cluttering the skies with twelve thousand satellites going at just a few hundred kilometers above our heads and and again in this case spacex actually changed the altitude of the satellite so originally they were going to be flying higher and they brought the altitude down 
so that they're flying just a little above the altitude of the International Space Station. And that puts them into a bulk of the Earth's atmosphere, which means that hmm. if, they're, if they aren't maintaining themselves, they'll crash back into the atmosphere in one to five years. So, so these low orbiting satellites are actually the least worry for space junk that you have to be concerned about because they just, it's like they're, they're already in a headwind and only by firing their thrusters on a regular basis will they stop themselves from, from crashing back into the atmosphere. Uh, so that's, that's great because you've got this and you know you've got this decreased chance that they're going to stick around the satellites that we have to be worried about are the ones that are much higher things that are in a thousand kilometers two thousand kilometers mm -hmm. those satellites will take hundreds or even thousands of years to come back to earth and can crash into each other and create this this sort of sphere of of metal around the planet that mm -hmm. would that would make it difficult to escape and you wouldn't be able to do it for thousands of years. But the worst case scenario with Starlink is if they do create this cascade, then you, you can't launch a satellite for about a year. And then once it's died down, then, then you're free to go. They also have thrusters on board so that they can change their location and they have the ability to detect potential collisions with the existing space junk that's out there. So, so I think the space junk concern is, is minimal. The okay. group that was not consulted, which really should have been mm -hmm. astronomers. Um, and so these photos went live. This video went live after the launch mm -hmm. happened. You could see these bright four stars. You could see this bright chain of stars in the sky as they moved. And I've seen it with my own eyes. I can go outside. I can look up and I could see the Starlink constellation go overhead. But, uh, and the astronomers were frustrated because like it's one thing to have a couple passing through your field of view, but when there are a hundred in the sky at all times in every direction, you will always have a satellite passing through your photograph, mm. right? Your data. And so it's going to make astronomy data worse. Mm. Uh, that said, it looks like they're changing the altitude. They're making them higher. They're making them a little harder to see now. And so they're actually very difficult to spot even in dark skies with the unaided eye, you need binoculars now to see them. So I think that they're not going to create this night sky nuisance for the vast majority of humanity, but for, for astronomers with their telescopes, they will absolutely be getting streaks going through as starlings pass through. But astronomers are, are very used to this airplanes, satellites, asteroids, a, and then just the, the light pollution of everybody turning mm -hmm. on their lights outside. Right. Yeah. And for those who are new to the idea of the Kessler syndrome, which has been around for, I don't know, 60 years, maybe, or something like that, that idea of uh, space junk crashing into another piece and then having this catastrophic explosion that rings the planet in, uh, in, in debris. And so you can't launch out of it for many years. I'm going to be having another guest on who's specifically interested in that. Yeah, the, yeah. So that's, future. I mean, that is the, we are hopefully entering an era. There was a lot of, of really unwise launches where people paid no concern about the future impact, literally, of their spacecraft, of their upper stage boosters and things like that. And I think we're entering this era now where, where every launch needs to have a plan for the end of life. Mm -hmm. And and so hopefully we're going to enter this era where where we minimize the space junk risk and 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 also people are concerned about going after these boosters that are flying around and these defunct satellites that are at high altitudes and try to bring them back down and and crash them into the atmosphere to get rid of them because 
it is really just a question of when some mm -hmm. of the impacts are going to start happening. Right, right. And the from from this other guest who will be coming on, I've learned that the data about the collision detection is not quite as good as you might want it to be. And some of it is uh, behind a security wall, so you don't get to see it. So the detection is not as good. So my point here is, although this sounds kind of like crazy science fiction, it is actually more and more closer to a possibility every day. And it only needs to happen once. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and so I, I just want to be really clear. You should be absolutely freaked out mm -hmm. about the potential <laughs> of a Kessler syndrome and about losing access to space exploration because of satellites crashing into each other. You just don't have to worry about Starlink. <laughs> right. That That's chunk it. of it is taken right. care of. Right. Yeah. Starlink Although, is Starlink is is uh, is not a, is not going to add to the space junk problem, which is enormous, and we need a problem. We need it to be solved. Right. Yeah, I, I had ideas of creating some sort of gigawatt, or I don't know how much energy you would need, but some sort of laser computer targeted thing that would zap satellites. Yeah. Nobody wants that in orbit, apparently. They don't want cannons in orbit. Uh, well, you, you know, population centers, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, obviously, a gigawatt laser has <laughs> other uses beyond yes. just helping gently nudge space junk into a, uh, you know, into burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. Right. Now, the terminal, as they call it, for the terrestrial transmitter receiver for Starlink is, as you said, about the size of a pizza box. And I was reading an article where uh, another space expert said that uh, because it's that large, in a sense, it doesn't seem that large, but if, there, if, if Musk is going to try and fit it into a Tesla automobile, where do you put it, right? And I, I don't know, it seems to me like there'd be lots of places, but well, but this is the beginning of the technology, right? right so you yeah. always start with the big version, right. the first version, and then these things get miniaturized and smaller. You're not going to be able to connect with your cellular phone to this network, mm -hmm. but maybe sometime, maybe someday you will at a dramatically reduced bandwidth. Maybe there will be some really slow way for you to connect to it. Um, maybe there'll be smaller receivers that'll, that will work that won't necessarily give high transmission. I mean, when you're, when I'm hiking, in the mountains of British Columbia, and I am, uh, and I have no cell service. I will accept any speed mm -hmm. to be able to send a call for help. So I think that that it's just too soon. We just don't know what the final configuration of all of these services are going to look like. Right, and if and if our listeners or viewers think about the transformation of computer memory over the years, yeah. and what you can fit now on a tiny little micro. SD card, right? Yeah. It's, it's tiny. It's the size of my fingernail. And yet you are limited by the laws of physics mm -hmm. in that, you know, the strength of a radio signal decreases over mm -hmm. distance, but there will be other advances to be able to try to attenuate the signal, try to come up with different, you know, bandwidth speeds. So uh, the, like we can receive a signal from the Voyager spacecraft, which is it takes light like 20 hours to get here from there. And we don't get a lot of signal, not a lot of speed, not a lot of throughput, but you can get a signal. So I think that, that once these satellites are in orbit and once people are tinkering with the different receivers, different options will open up. But I'm sure anybody with a cabin with, um, with who owns a boat and is just out sailing and 
things like, you know, think of all kinds of emergency situations right. and remote monitoring and forest fire uh, observation towers and things like that. They, this would be enormous for them. But then also for any regular human being, in theory, you'll be, get a, be able to get a faster internet service than you currently get from your broadband provider. Right. And no matter where you are. Hopefully at a better signal strength since it does seem to go everywhere. Right. Yeah, the, the great part about, about satellite, the low orbiting satellite, is that you're, you're sending your light at the true power of the true speed of light. Mm -hmm. So light that goes through a fiber, fiber optic cable is going at a, about a half the speed of light. You know, the speed of light in glass is less than the speed of light in vacuum. And the satellites are sending it at vacuum. So the, the plan actually is that the ping times will be low, the transmission speeds will be fast, it will feel like very fast internet no matter where you are. And there's some really interesting uh, privacy considerations as well. The plan, as we understand it right now, is that it's going to be offered as a broadcast network. So what will happen is your receiver will transmit data to the satellite. The satellite will pick up the data, will retransmit the answer, say you want to watch a YouTube video, to just to the entire area. And then your receiver will throw out all the packets that aren't meant for you and will, will allow you to watch the it'll decrypt the stuff that's meant for you, throw out everything else, and you'll have your video. And what that means is there's no intermediaries. There's no such thing as net neutrality. There's no, no one, there's no routing to go and go, oh, this is Netflix traffic, so let's slow this down. All traffic will just go the exact same speed and there's no way to sort of get in the way of it. And also, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with countries because you kind of can't stop these broadcasts from coming mm. into your country. And so you can uh, restrict the sale of the receivers, but people in, in fairly, you know, people in North Korea can get their hands on a receiver. They can get access to high speed internet that's unfiltered. Hmm. So big changes, big, big changes. changes. So other than like, it's going to be a big revenue stream for SpaceX. Right, and and SpaceX will take that money and drive other goals with it. I'm they can sure. Go to Mars. Right. <laughs> other goals. <laughs> uh, have you imagined any other uses for this system? Well, do you mean like the dump truck loads of money? <laughs> the well, the having this satellite system up there. No. Okay. No, That's no. I, I mean, I, I mean, there are theoretically some edge case ideas about navigation systems, about um, uh, like scientific data monitoring, things like that. But, and, and you know, you could put an earth facing camera on each one of these things and, and have a really cool, you know, have some, but, but in those cases, you want a more specialized machine. You want right. to, you a want black a black sky satellite or something. You want a satellite with a nice big telescope that's pointing down that's able to take better pictures than something that's that's small and if you want to do science you want to have a bigger space telescope that's pointing up so these are all about providing tr transmitting data and, okay. and i hope they're going to do a great job of that <laughs> having the ability to launch 60 telescopes all the 60 satellites all at the same time that could all be space telescopes and then sent off to other places in the solar system that's a intriguing possibility so I, th I think that's, that's, these are all sort of on Elon Musk's wish list. Hmm. Um, but, but for today, the plan is make dump truck loads of money and use that to send people to Mars. Okay. As weird as that sounds, that is the plan. <laughs> 
Awesome. So let's go into business then. You've co-founded two businesses that went public and then created one of your own that's a lifestyle business. Mm -hmm. and perhaps more on that. Uh, why don't I guess you begin by telling us a little bit about the two that went public, which are Absolute and Communicate, right? Sure, yeah. So the first, so I, after I graduated high school, I went to engineering at University of British Columbia, and then I failed out of UBC and uh, because I was starting a um, software company with a buddy of mine. Hmm. We did this like 1991, before that was cool. Um, and the company was called Absolute Software, and the gist of it was that we would essentially, I had, I had this new laptop computer, and I was really worried about it getting stolen. And so I was like, is there some way that we could put a virus onto my computer so that if it ever gets stolen, it will call home and we'll be able to pass along the phone number to the police, and they'll know, and they'll go and, and pick it up. And so my, my buddy and I, we were talking about Christian, um, we were talking about it, and and then we sort of got more serious and started to actually develop code and start to build a business for it. And like you do, you know, I, I raised a friends and family round in the beginning with a bunch of, of people uh, that only got us some, so far. And then we had to go and, and find bigger investors to raise further levels. I was involved in the company for about three years and then it sort of got to a point and this is sort of leading into my, my, my existence now, which was where it just, it felt out of control for me where it was like, okay, there's too many people that were managing. There's too like, there are, um, there are financial obligations. There are meetings with investors and I'm not enjoying any of this. Hmm. And so I really enjoyed the creation part, the getting it to a certain stage, and then I didn't enjoy the, the, the scaling up part. And so I stepped aside, sold out a bunch of my shares, and then uh, over the next couple of years, Absolute Software went public on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Uh, it still is um, and doing well. So it's a very large organization. It's, it's pretty hilarious. My, my son went on a... Um, on a field trip in Vancouver. And he's like, well, we went to a bunch of technology companies. I'm like, oh yeah, where'd you go to? He's like, well, we went to this one place where they got computers back after they were stolen. I'm like, oh, that, that was the company that I founded. He's like, what? No way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and then the other one, communicate.com. So after I left Absolute Software, I joined up with a web uh, development company. It was back then, it was called Immediate Digital. And I really wanted to get into web development and building websites. I knew, you know, this was 1995, so I knew this was the future. I was a little worried that I was late already <laughs> to building websites in 1995. And, uh, and so I've met this guy, Brian Liu and, and Pat Redding, and they had already started up this company. And I really liked them, and I liked the business and their philosophy and joined them. And for about five years or so, I worked with, with that company, and, and that was a that was a lot more digestible to me. We sort of scaled it up to, to the point that we had about 80 people working with us. We were developing websites for large uh, institutional clients, banks, uh, BC Hydro, uh, various uh, um, yeah, other power companies, gas companies, so a lot of things like that. And, and the, but, the, but the thing was that we also owned a whole bunch of early domain names. Hmm. So we owned like hockey.com and boxing.com and wrestling.com and <laughs> vancouver.com. We owned like a like hundred of these. 
And so we started to develop this plan that we were going to try and turn these into a, into a thing. And then that brought in investors. And, and again, that sort of gave me the, it got to a point where it didn't feel like it was my bag anymore. And I left. And then it eventually went on, man, I forget, I even forget the name. It was like not the regular, it was the OTT, OBB. Anyway, it was a different, um, it's a different, someone listening knows what I'm talking about. It's like, a, it's a different version of a public market designed to, to raise funds. And then I, I think it's been since acquired and crushed up and moved into pieces and it's gone. But for a while there, it was worth, you know, several million dollars. So that's the theme for me, right? Is that there's a certain phase that I like to be in, which is, it's very tangible and understandable to me. Mm. And when it gets into this point where, where you're going for the big scale and you're going for the big exit, I'm not super interested in, in that because then you just have to do it again. Right. And, and you make a bunch of money, but so what, right? Cause then you now have to go do, but what I enjoy is the, is like building these things from the ground up. So um, while I was working at communicate.com, I started, I decided I was going to build a website on the side just to understand how, just more experience in building websites that I could bring back to my clients. And I picked one of my hobbies, which was astronomy and space. And was like, I'm just going to start this website on the side. And the hilarious part was maybe a year into it. I was like, Oh, okay, this is, I, I learned so much. I was having so much fun, this direct connection with readers. I'm like, okay, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so then when I wrapped up my involvement with communicate, I was able to move on to, to just doing universe today. And, you know, I had some money saved up and my wife was working. And so I was able to transition to that and push it pretty hard. And I'm here 20 years later, uh, still having a ball. Uh, and that is, and you know, it is a lifestyle business. The number of the staff is very low. You know, it has ranged from only me to maybe 12 people at the most. Um, very nimble. Uh, we always have a really good time, I think. And, um, and it's built to last. So it's purpose, you know, instead of, instead of having like, what is your exit for money? Mm -hmm. The question that I think about is how do I make this more fun for me? Hmm. That is, that is the profit that it makes is, is what is a way for me to have more interesting experiences to be able to connect with astronomers and astronauts, to be able to go on interesting trips, to be able to connect with people and educate them about, about this thing that we love. That is that is what it generates. And also I get to, and it generates enough revenue for me to be able to make it be a living. Right. So what kind of things are you doing for clients? Well, there are no clients. Okay. Yeah. So yeah specifically you are, educating, needing talk. Yeah. yeah. The revenue sources are advertising okay. um, as well as the patrons. So I have about 800 patrons and so they're my clients. And so what am I doing? I'm, Pleasing them. <laughs> yep. with them. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, uh, Patreon, having a pay, the ability to directly be funded by the people who enjoy this material is the greatest mm -hmm. thing in the world. Uh, advertisers are great. And I, you know, we couldn't do this without them, but, but they are interested in selling their product while the patrons are interested in us 
doing a better job of talking about space and astronomy, which is all I want to do. So, um, and when you think about the options for funding this kind of stuff, right? Like one option is advertising. The other option, which you're seeing more and more often now, is putting things behind a paywall, mm. which is, which I don't like, and I, you know, I only have so much budget for for paying monthly services for a bunch of stuff. Uh, Patreon is this really nice balance. The people who can pay want to, and that allows me to provide the content to everybody for free. That's the perfect model. Right. Uh, now, I, I've seen that model used many, many times. Um, there's a number of people I subscribe to on, on YouTube, Lon Seidman for tech reviews. Uh, there's a guy who goes by T.I.K. Tick who does World War II stuff. Oh, that's cool. And uh, his his patrons essentially pay him to research World War II stuff yeah. and then tell him, tell him yeah, about that's, it. And that's the same thing for me, right? Is, <laughs> yeah. is I read journal articles uh, and attend press conferences and then turn that into analysis and videos and explainers for my audience. And nobody else is moving in the same field that I'm in exactly. Hmm. So, um, you know, there, there are a lot of large media companies who are chasing the press releases and then there's other, but Isaac Arthur, as you mentioned, right, is, is absolutely the same kind of thing. He's carved right. out a total niche for himself talking about these ideas that we all loved in, in science fiction that is just not, there's not enough demand or budget for CNN to talk hmm. about Dyson spheres at that same level or colonizing Pluto, but, but Isaac's fans love that stuff. And so I think right. it's, I think that's the future for me anyway. How self-directed are you? Like that tick guy, for example, his patrons direct him a lot. They will say, look, go find out about right. the battle of the Corlin pocket, which is one specific area. And so he does like a 10 part mini series on that. Right? <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> um, it's a mix. I mean, you, you, I talk to a lot of my patrons a lot of the time. And so mm. I get a real sense of, of what topics they're really interested in. And I try to answer as many comments as I have time for every day in the YouTube and on Twitter and, you know, in Patreon. And so I, I have this and I do live QA shows and I do recorded QA shows. And so I have a really good sense of what the patrons and just the audience, what the fans are interested in. And then I use that as, as a, you know, that is me taking the pulse all the time of what people are into. And then I, I use that to sort of base what I'm working on. But I also think that people trust me as, you know, they want the chef special. So they, mm. they like what I'm curious about. And, and I will often surprise them with the topics. It's, they didn't realize it was something that they wanted, but it turns out that it is something that they wanted. They didn't know that they wanted to know about some weird, obscure space mission that, that would have been launched back in the 70s, but got canceled. And, but I, I do research into it. So I think it's, it's a mix. Okay, very good. Uh, is there any other advice that you'd have for somebody listening who maybe has been do running their own business for a while and is getting that feeling of not being totally sick of it, but a bit maybe discouraged about what it's doing to their soul? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, the research is pretty clear that, that beyond a certain amount of money, hmm. you're not any happier. Mm -hmm. So if, if, if you have any subroutine in your head that is saying, 
if this happens and I get this outcome, then I will be happy. That's not true. You will not be happy. You will not be happier than you are. So, so just be really careful as you, if, if you're putting yourself through this misery and at the same time, the plan is you're doing this because you just want more. Um, you will be sadly surprised when, if you do get more and, and, but also the vast majority of startups uh, will fail. So, but, but I think that if you love it and if you are like, if you were in there and if you weren't paid at all and you still were just having so much fun doing what you're doing, then just keep doing that. Right. It's when you are suffering for what you think is an outcome that you're probably not going to appreciate when it actually does arrive. And I think that's the thing is, is that we put so much of our lives on hold. We, I mean, it, it, there are times when I absolutely have to work 12 hours, 16 hours to get, you know, we've, we've got some deadlines that I've imposed to release a video and I've haven't written my scripts in advance and I have to grind, but I, but I'm still enjoying myself as I'm doing it. So I think that the sacrifice will always come, but it's, it's just, what are you doing it for? And what, if you can get that squared away, but I also think that there are going to be very few businesses that, that are going to be hundred million dollar businesses. They're going to have a, an exit right. that big. Very few businesses, they're going to have a $10 million exit. But there are so many businesses that you can have where you just need to make $200,000 a year, have a couple of employees, be able to pay your money, set aside money for your retirement, have a place that you live that you enjoy, send your kids to school, and have time to, mm. to be a peaceful, productive member of society. And I think that it's that, it's that balance that is, is missing from a lot of people's expectations. Okay. Let me hop back to space for a second and then we'll finish up. I just got struck with this question and hopefully you have an answer to it. <laughs> uh, let's say that there's a listener or a viewer who is, has been interested in space but hasn't really done anything about it. And they look at the whole field like, oh, I Google space topics or something and get overwhelmed with everything. Is there a place or a starting point that they could do first, go check out first or yeah. buy a pair of binoculars and go up and start <laughs> looking at the night sky? Well, I've done that. Right? I was well, doing that. Two parts to it, right? Yeah. There's, yeah. there's the, like, I want to know about astronomy. I want to be an amateur astronomer and I want to be able to see the night sky. And for that, I recommend two things. You buy an eight inch Dobsonian telescope. There's a bunch of provider, you know, manufacturers that will make them. Eight inch Dobsonian, that's the key. The Dobsonian okay. is the dial, which is this very inex inexpensive, easy to use, but very manual telescope. Uh, eight inches is a very respectable size. Okay. And they're very easy to use. And literally you, you see a bright thing in the sky and you go, I wonder what that is. And then you take the telescope and you, you grab the front end of it and you shift it over and you look through the eyepiece. And you're like, oh, it's Jupiter, right? That's how this works. Um, they're great and they're inexpensive. You can buy one for $350. And then I recommend a program like Stellarium, uh, which is free to use on your computer. And it will show you this, this 3D representation of the night sky and have little things there, little, little featured objects and go, this is this nebula, that is that galaxy. And then between those two things, you learn your night sky, you take your telescope outside. When you see a bright thing in the sky, you look at it. And then you, with Stellarium, learn the constellations and learn to find some of these objects in the night sky. And over time, 
the, the nice guy will stop being just these stars that you see and turn into this map that you can read. And I, it's wonderful. If you're just interested in like, what's the current stage of space exploration, uh, this is going to be totally self-serving, but I highly recommend my weekly email newsletter, which is something that I've been, I've been writing. Uh, I've had some version of a newsletter for the last 20 years, but over the last two years, I, I sort of rebuilt the whole thing from the ground up. And it is t the top 12 stories that I think are interesting this week in space exploration and astronomy these discoveries, these launches, these new developments. Uh, I've put some astrophotography in there, uh, linked to some interviews that I've done. And it's not all stuff that I've, I, I write every word in the newsletter, but it's not all my stories or not Universe Today stories. Whoever I think has got an interesting piece of news, I will, I will report that. And it is just this, there's no ads in it, it's totally free. And it is a, just a roundup of, of all the space news. So if you go to universetoday.com slash newsletter, you can sign up to that to that newsletter, and it's sort of like if I wanted to, if I could only get one piece of space news, what this is what I would want it to be. Okay, I'm going to go do that after the Perfect. show because I've followed you for a long time, as as I said, and I think you created a Moon Phase app or something yep. Uh, yep. that I got, and and obviously you know seen you on Twitter and that kind of thing, but I didn't know you had the newsletter. So okay. yeah, yeah, there you it's, go. Uh, it, like I said, it's sort of the it's my favorite thing is, hmm. is right now is because it's, I know exactly who the audience is. I know exactly what they want to receive. And my job is to make something that people, cause I know you, we all get so much email, right? Yeah. So the question is what is going to be the one that you get that says, okay, this is the one I'm keeping and I'm going to ignore all the rest. Right. That's the one that I wanted to make. Okay. So that would be a great place to start interacting with you with uh, at universetoday.com slash newsletter. Also, yeah. you're on Twitter. Yeah, I'm everywhere. I'm on Instagram. Right. I'm on YouTube. I'm on obviously our website. Uh, you name it. I am. I'm on, I try to be as present as I can on all the platforms. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, let's finish up there. My guest today has been Fraser Kane. He's the publisher of universetoday.com. Go get that newsletter. I'm going to write after the show here. And also the co-host of astronomycast.com. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jason. <laughs>